0: Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 50. The 50th Psalm, a Psalm of Asaph. Verse 5. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Some of us have had the unenviable occurrence of standing before a magistrate and giving an account for a life. Even those that are innocent of crimes that are presented before them find themselves in a position that is not to be desired. You stand before one that has authority and if they are a partial judge, may dismiss the truth and dismiss you to judgment. We have before us in this psalm a different scenario. The closest that we can come to understanding this is what we see in the courtroom. Even standing before the President of the United States does not carry the weight that we see in this psalm. And there are very few earthly monarchies still in existence that would teach to us from real life application what this psalm brings. You look at England, and the king there is not the one completely ruling. There's a prime minister that rules often in his stead. Yet in many Middle Eastern countries, you still see the king or the sovereign being the supreme judge. And that is what we have here before us this morning in Psalm 50. Christ, the supreme judge, stands before his church, calls her before the bar concerning her worship. You may have read John Bunyan's work, The Holy War. You remember how man's soul is taken over by Satan, And the other Diabolians. And how Emmanuel goes. And does spiritual warfare. To the end that he may regain. Mansoul unto himself. And after regaining Mansoul. Emmanuel. sets up. Court. And brings Mansoul before him. And so it is beloved. I come before you with a passage from the Lord. Every time that we come into the worship of the Lord, we are entering into his throne room. It has been said that the most dangerous thing you can do is sit under the preaching of the word of God. The reason is because you will give an account for what you hear. This is a sermon not just for you, but is for everyone in the church. It is a sermon for me as well, that I would take in heed what the Lord would say in His Word. In the providence of the Lord, there are times at which judgment comes. Sometimes the Spirit convicts us privately and personally. We'll hear a brother say a word to us, a brother that may not even know what's going on in our life, and it convicts us. We may be having our morning devotions, and the Spirit draw out from the text, Something for us to know, our sin to be repented of. Other times there's a more public chastening, which may be done by the word of God being preached to the people. Or it may be because of some excommunication that must be publicly acknowledged and proclaimed so that the whole church may fear and reverence the holy God. Understand this, beloved. When the Lord comes to you with one of these instances, whether it's private or public, this is a foretaste of what is to come on the last day. It is a condescension of the Lord to do so. He is long-suffering to us, and He is coming to you now to warn you to repent and believe the gospel. So that on the last day when you stand before Him, you can give an account saying, I have taken hold of Christ by faith and his righteousness. But it is not just that that we have. But understand, beloved, this text is a loving warning given to the church that she may repent of her sins before assembling before Christ on the last day. This morning, as we look at the psalm, We'll note two things. First, the righteous judge in verses 1 through 6. And second, the righteous judgment in verses 7 through 23. Now, This is Psalm 50. Many of us are familiar with the Psalter. We have memorized large portions of the Psalter. We are very familiar with it. We know that the Psalms are broken into five books. Do you also know that the Psalms are broken into sections of 50? This is the first section of 50. And something important for us to understand about these breakups that the Holy Spirit in his wisdom and ordering and collecting and gathering the Psalms together has done is to give to us what we see in scripture in first Peter. That judgment begins at the household of God. Psalm 50 is the gospel and judgment given to the church. Psalm 100, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. It is a particular address of the gospel to the visible world. And then Psalm 151 The invisible church made visible when the entirety of the elect of God are gathered together for his worship as he has commanded it. So see with me now, Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. The righteous judge, the mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth From the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof, out of Zion the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very temptuous round about him. He shall call the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those That have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness. For God is judge himself. Selah. This psalm is the first of twelve that we have given to us in the Psalter. Penned by Asaph. Uh, Asaph was one that was a contemporary of David. We read of him in 1st Chronicles 16 and 25. His very name means gatherer, and so it is that as a prophet he gathered and collected the psalms together for the public worship of the Lord's people. It's interesting the amount of time that Asaph spends in this psalm detailing the righteous judge is only 6 verses. The rest of it is given to the judgment of that king. The truth of the Lord has gone out before the entirety of the world. And yet, we have given to us a description of this righteous judge in the first three verses. Our English translation says, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken. In the Hebrew, it is El, Elohim, Jehovah, has spoken. We have three names of God given to us here. We see this again in Revelation 19. But before Asaph wrote the psalm, we saw it in Joshua 22, near the end of the book, with a gathering of the tribes of Israel. See how Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are now taken back to their territories. They return to from whence they came. They have been faithful to obey the voice of Joshua, to go out in conquest with the children of Israel. And now that the land has rest overall, still with skirmishes to be had, they return to their land. And they set up some stones as a memorial. Not all of Israel understands what's going on. And in fact, they take it as them standing up before the Lord in contradistinction to the worship that he has offered. They see this as a schism in the church. Look at verse 22. Lord God of gods, Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if it be in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. Reuben Gad and Manasseh make clear that their intention was not to establish a different religion, but they would have a testimony that would stand for all time to remind them that they are united to the church and not separated from her. But it is interesting, is it not, beloved?, The three times that we see in scripture of these names of God given in Joshua 22, Psalm 50 and Revelation 19, it is the church standing before the holy tribunal of God. See how he has described this righteous judge. He is the God. He is the mighty God. He is Jehovah. He and no other. The pagan nations have round about them gathered many demons. Demons that they worship, they worship not the one true God. But all must give an account to the holy God. We see the scope of his righteous judgment. We see the extent of his authority, beloved. Look at what it says. He hath spoken and call the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. The Lord is not silent. He, in the darkness, was the one that first said, Let there be light. And there was light. He has spoken. You parents, you often deal with your children. You children, listen to me. How many times does mommy or daddy have to say something to you for you to obey them and to know what they're saying is true? Only once. How many times, adults, does our Holy Father need to speak to us for us to know that it is true and that we ought to obey him? Only once. The Lord has spoken. And yet in his condescension, his long-suffering, his mercy, what do we see in Scripture? Self-revelation after self-revelation. Again and again, coming to his people and condescending to us. He who is sinless, coming to us wretches, coming to you who is riddled with sin. And he comes to you again. And he has spoken. He is not silent. He speaks to you now this morning. It is definite. It is deliberate. And it is done. When God speaks, we may not alter what he speaks. We may not question it. We may not come and tweak it. No, the word of the Lord is definitive. You see the expanse of his rule from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Isn't it interesting? In the pagan world, they have gods for everything. A god for water, a god for the earth, a god for the wind. But the one true God who created the heavens and the earth is in charge of all. That's why there's only one true God. And a god can only be a god if he controls all. If he has to jockey for position with other deities, he is no god at all. This is important for us to understand the separateness of our God, the absoluteness of his rule. See from once he rules in verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. We often say that the truth is found in the church, but where has the church gotten it? The church gets her truth from heavenly Zion. Heavenly Zion, the mother of us all. It is from the Lord that we receive truth. And the church's duty is to be a salt and light to a dark, decaying world. And so you, Christian, when you see this, you see that this the Lord is speaking out of Zion, you need to understand If you are not being a salt and light to the world, there's a problem. You're declaring that your citizenship is not in Zion, but it is in hell. You must speak truth out of Zion. The Lord is beautiful. It is his heavenly abode. It is separate from the earth, and yet he condescends to us. He comes down and stoops to us. And we see the greatest of these condescensions in the incarnation of Jesus, the Christ. The second person of the Godhead would take unto him a true body and a reasonable soul. Would take our nature to himself and walk among us and not slay us every second that he stepped on this earth. You get irritated with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You get irritated with your physical siblings. Here's our great elder brother coming out of Zion, the ivory towers as we read and sing in the Psalm 49. And he comes to us, being born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were bound and slain by that law. Out of Zion, perfection comes. We see it chiefly in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very word of God being made flesh. Our God comes and he shall not keep silent. This is a mercy to us, beloved. The many times that the Lord speaks to us, How many times have you been at work perhaps and been pulled into a surprise meeting? You're pulled into a meeting and you have no idea what's going to happen and all of a sudden there's this litany of errors that you have made throughout the year. And you think to yourself, well, had I known these things, I would have changed my way. I would have changed what I was doing. The Lord is not bringing a surprise meeting to the church. The Lord is speaking. He's speaking repeatedly to the church. It is a mercy of the Lord to do so. And so you, believer, you sitting there before me, you, each Sabbath that sit before your minister, every time you sit there, it is a mercy. Every time you hear the word of God, it is a mercy. What do we read concerning this? In our catechism, what is the duty and responsibility that you have sitting under the preaching of the Word? Is it not to take it, to say, yes, this is true, to apply it to your heart, to turn from your sin and to turn to, from your, to, unto Christ? And every Sabbath that you sit under the Word and you just let the message go in one ear and out the other, you're sewing up for yourself a bad day on the last day. Saving up yourself judgment for what you have heard and dismissed. We'll see in the second service, one that sat with Christ and dismissed him. What a tragedy. What a sad thing. To sit under the preaching of the word of God, Sabbath after Sabbath, After Sabbath, there's a lost and dying world out there that is receiving no messages of the gospel. And yet you are hearing it. You heard it in your baptism. Your children have received it as well in theirs. And to neglect the means of grace that are being offered to you is a horrendous thing. But here, the great righteous judge comes with a true word a continual word to the earth. See what he says. It is like Job, is it not, in verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very temptuous round about him. Remember the book of Job, a book that is given to us to show the patience that ought to be had in the midst of affliction. Even when we don't know the reason for the affliction that is occurring. A patience that ought to be had. And we see Job, how his faith is tested. How at the beginning of the book it says, Job did not sin with his mouth or in his heart. And then it says, Job did not sin with his mouth. And there's a chipping away at the faith of Job. Until, soon enough, he sins with his lips. And he begins to ridicule God. He begins to question the goodness of God. So at the very end, Job's friend speaking, Elihu finally comes and brings a word before the Lord comes and sets up his tribunal for Job. And it is is it not similar? The Lord comes in power. The Lord comes in ferocity. A fire shall devour before him. He shall not keep silence. Behold, he cometh on the wind. He cometh in the storm. And then we must give an account. He shall call the heavens from above and the earth that he may judge his people. The righteous judge that we have is a covenant-keeping judge, a covenant-keeping God. We see here something similar to Deuteronomy. Moses standing before the church in the Old Testament, before they're to go into the land of promise. He's giving the law a second time to the children of Israel. Young people that grew up, the men weren't circumcised, and they're receiving the law the first time, the final time in their hearing, before going into the land of promise. And what does Moses do after he is done explaining the law to them, after he is done bringing the blessings and the curses? What does Moses say to the church? What does he say to you? I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. And so it is. Everything that we do will be called to witness. And the Lord will gather all his people. He will gather the entire earth, and he will call heaven and earth to witness against us. You say, how is it possible that heaven will be called in against a witness against us? Does the Lord not charge his angels over us to care for us? Imagine, on the last day, the messengers of God giving an account for what they saw, for how they aided us giving an account concerning the things of the Lord's people. Now, we will also judge angels. Apostle Paul makes that quite clear. But the Lord will call them as witnesses and say, what of this person? What of that person? What did you see? What did you witness? He will call heaven and earth to witness against us. He may call your ungodly, unbelieving co-workers to witness against you on the last day. Remember, that day is not just a check to see who's saved, who's not saved. There are, there's the book of life that is open, and there are the books opened. And Christ himself notes that we will all give an account for every word spoken. We ought to be very careful concerning this. We will stand before that righteous judge. But see the citation that the righteous judge gives in verses 4 through 6. He should call heaven and earth... From the people above to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness. For God is judge himself. Selah. The Lord calls the entirety of the earth together. But where does judgment begin? First Peter 4.17. Judgment must begin at the house a hold of god who is it that is sent by god that is left by god to be a salt and a light to the world is it the world no it is the church and so the lord first calls the church together to say have you done as i have commanded you i have given you the gospel i have given you holy worship I have given you my very law. What have you done to act as a salt and a light in the world? He calls us together. Well, that's for us to consider. We might be able to think that we can skirt by on things in here on the earth. But on the last day, the world will be there witnessing the holy judge coming to his church. It's not going to cast this church into hell. Do not think that at all. But it will not be a time of rejoicing for many. What does Christ say in Revelation? It's recorded for us that he will wipe away every tear. It's not just tears because we finally see Christ, which will be a beautiful and wonderful thing to be before the beatific vision. But we'll be weeping over our sin weeping over the way that we were not faithful to what he has charged us with. There's a citation now before the righteous judge. Do we not have this in our own courts? We hear all rise before the right and honorable judge and all rise. You hear a knock at your door. There's someone there with a summons. They ask you, are you such and such? You say, yes. piece of paper gets shoved out against your chest. You have been served. This is the church being served. Called before the righteous judge. The Lord has aught with his people. He doesn't do so because he hates his church. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. As a father loves a son else would ye be bastards. This is what the book of Hebrews teaches. This is what all of Scripture teaches. Even Cain, even ungodly Cain in Genesis 4 was part of the visible church and God still pursued after him. We see the righteous judge. He is not partial. He does not have error. God is judge himself. He shall declare his righteousness. Is this not a blessing, beloved, for you to take hold of in a world with an ever-shifting moral compass, an ethic that is decided by the mob? The Lord has no such ethic or moral compass. We have his moral law, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. We know what the duty is. We know when we bring the gospel to a lost and dying world, and we say to them, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And they come to us and say, Okay, well, what is sin? We don't have to go like this. Well, today the Spirit says sin is this. We can bring the holy law of God to them and say, The Lord has said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we should. And we should preach that to ourselves first. Before you give the gospel in evangelism, beloved, you had better preach the gospel to yourself. You had better make sure that you are savingly trusting in Christ. That when you go to confront your neighbor with their sins so that they may turn from their sins and under Christ, that you are not committing the same sin. What a heinous thing to think. You knock on your neighbor's door and you say, brother, you need to come to Christ. Why? Because it's a sin. What are sins? You start listing them off. And then he turns around and says to you, were you not committing adultery with my wife last week? Who are you to bring this gospel to me? Beloved, the Lord will give righteous judgment. The church has been plagued by two twin sins throughout her history. From Genesis 3 to the end, Revelation 19, we see these twin sins throughout the history of the church. We see them in the world today. And it is formalism and lawlessness Well, it's the second point, the righteous judgment that we see in verses 7 through 23. The two things that the Lord takes issue with is formalism and lawlessness. If you look at the gospel accounts, you see Christ walking among the church. What are the two things that he is always dealing with? The Pharisees with their formalism and the excommunicated with their lawlessness. Or the unbelieving pagans with their lawlessness. And so it is that the Lord in his love and his compassion and long-suffering and mercy comes to us and tells us what our problem is. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't say, well, it's uh, it might be this, it might be that, kind of shifty. He's very direct. He's very clear. And he deals with both parties. He does not say to one party, because of this party's sin, I'm going to overlook your sin. No, he deals with both parties. How many times have you shared the gospel with someone in the world? They say, I would be a Christian except, you know, this person over here that I know is a Christian. He acts so wickedly. What should be your response? It needs to be Is Christ like that? You may give an example of a wicked Christian. I can't help that. But this is the Christ. This is the Savior. This is the one that we are to be like. This is the one we are to follow. It is with his atoning sacrifice that our sins are cleansed by the shedding of his blood. You can bring wicked Christians as evidence, but that just means that they're more like you. And not like the Christ that I'm preaching to you. And why would you have a bother with that? The righteous judgment of the Lord. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. The indictment is brought against the church. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills is mine. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the air are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Formalism is one of the things that is often very hard for us to root out, is it not? To have the outside all right, and yet the inside being like a sepulcher full of dead men's bones. And oftentimes other people don't see it. You can have whole denominations like this. You can have whole families like this, a whole person like this, where the external appears clean and perfect and pristine, but inside is rottenness. Is interesting, beloved. Formalism often gives way to lawlessness. Do we not see this? You'll see this in the text. You'll see this in Scripture. You'll see this in your own life at times. Will you not excuse your sin because of the goodness that you have externally? Right, The formalist Pharisees How did their formalism turn to lawlessness? They murdered the very son of God. They broke the third commandment. They took his name in vain. He is thy God, is what is said. God's coming to his church because it is his church. Hear, O my people. What a blessing that is to hear that God is coming and saying, you are mine, and I love you, and this is why I'm coming to you, to rebuke you for your formalism. The indictment that he lays out is because of the formal nature of the offerings. Notice he doesn't rebuke them that they're doing the offerings and the worship the way that God has commanded You never see that in Scripture. Instead, the rebuke is because it's mere form. It's mere externals. And perhaps you this morning are one of those. You think that you have God on the hook because you are obeying everything that he says to do. You're coming and you're singing the psalms, so I have bonus points with God. You've made him your pet. You've made him your slave. You tell God, come here and do this for me because I did these things for you. This is why God in the indictment against the church says these things. He says, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy fold. I cannot be bought, is what the Lord says. You can buy men. You cannot buy God. There is nothing that you have to barter. That number one, you did not first receive from him. And secondly, that he wants. What do we see him doing instead? He gives to us. He gives to us his son. But see what he says here. Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowl of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Those of you that grew up with hymns probably remember the one hymn that said that very thing. He owns the cattle in a thousand hills. And it was a cheery hymn, was it not? Come to the psalm. Is this a cheery situation? This is a rebuke, beloved. This is a rebuke to you. To say, don't you dare... Come to me with your affluence and the things that you have and say, here's this, now do this for me. Don't you dare, because I own it all. It's mine. And how dare you take the things that I have given to you to worship me with as a bargaining chip, as a carrot on the end of a stick? How often have you done that, beloved? How often have you come before the Lord in prayer? And it changed from humility to pride. And you start to barter with God. You start to say to Him, Lord, have I not been faithful in all these things? Have I not? It would just be so wonderful if you'd give me this. That's not humility. That's the pride found in formalism showing its ugly head. And it's not pride lawlessness. You're breaking the first commandment. You've set yourself up as God. You have other gods before him as well. You're bowing down to them. You have taken his name in vain. You children, in baptism, you have the name of Christ on you. And when you sin, you take the Lord's name in vain. You adults, you have the Lord's name upon you. And when you sin you take the Lord's name in vain. The commandment doesn't say, don't take the Lord's name. No, on the contrary, in the gospel, you must take the Lord's name. You're not to take it in vain. You are not to take it in vain. The Lord brings indictment against this church. Here is something interesting. How many judges do you know that will give a solution before the verdict is read? Give you time to repent of the error of your ways. You see the loving, merciful, long-suffering, righteous judge that we have. That as we who bring worship to God stand before the bar. He comes to us with an indictment and then follows it up with a remedy. Verses 14 to 15. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. What is the very first catechism that we teach our children. And the shorter it says, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Here is the remedy. To change from a heart of pride, from a heart of self-will, from a form that does everything right on the outside, but inside, you're trying to keep it together. And God says, Offer thanksgiving to me. So instead of taking what I have given to you and using it as a bargaining platform, you take what I have given to you and you give a portion back and say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Do you understand this is what the tithe is? This is why we have the tithe continually. We still give to Christ. Abraham gave to Christ through Melchizedek. We give to Christ still today. But what are we giving to him? Only 10% of what he's given to us. Consider this. When we sing the Psalms, what are we doing? We are tithing with our lips. We are only giving back a portion of what he has given to us. And is that not beautiful? It's an argument for the Psalms. That when we sing, and we sing exactly what the Lord has given to us, it's our tithing back in song. And so it is, the Lord says to do such, pay thy vows unto the Most High. The formalist violates vowing. The formalist violates the covenants that he has made with the living God because he has everything on the outside correct, but the inside is rotten. But the Lord in his mercy says, that you may call upon him in the day of trouble. Those of you young men that are studying through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. What do you see of Lady Wisdom? What does she say? If you put your lot with the lawless, with the murderers and the thieves, what does she say she's going to do when you're in trouble? She's going to laugh at you. You'll call for me and I won't be there and I will laugh at you. But what does the Lord say here to the formalist? Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee out, and thou shalt glorify me. You see the thanksgiving that's offered. There's a necessity in having a correct form of worship. God doesn't dismiss it and say, well, just be better than the lawless. Just be a cleaned up version of the lawless. No, he wants the form correct. But what did he tell the woman at the well in Samaria? The true worshipers of God worship him in spirit and in truth. You have to have truth, but you also have to have the spirit. The form is useless without the heart. It lacks love, beloved. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I'm able to do all these great deeds, wrestle with beasts in Ephesus, preach wonderful words and have not love, it's nothing. It's hollow. It's like a broken symbol. And so it is with the formalist. The Lord comes and says, give substance to your formalism. Take out the decaying part and fill it with what is true and good you've been to a dentist recently, he looks at your teeth and he says, uh-oh, one of your molars looks bad. You're going to have to drill. What's happened with that tooth? You have a cavity that's gone into the tooth. The outside of the tooth looks good, doesn't it? But you have this little hole where the bacteria goes in and starts rotting out the inside. The dentist has to go in with his drill and drill out all the decay and the rot and then fill it with something solid that is not rotten. And that's the gospel, beloved. You can have all the externals right and be dead on the inside. And Christ comes to you with his gospel and says, repent and believe on me and you shall be saved. And this is what Christ did his entire earthly ministry. He called them to repentance. Repentance. The righteous judge before the formless, but we also see the righteous judge before the lawless in 16 to the end. See their indictment in verses 16 through 20. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do? What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction, and casteth my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with them, and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. Asaph is writing. As a contemporary of David, perhaps it's right at the end of David's life. Perhaps David is passed on. Asaph crosses over to the time of Solomon. See what Asaph says here and consider what Solomon says in his sixth chapter. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that defies wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among his brethren. As you go through the book of Proverbs, you should see yourself being pulled back to the Psalms, the Psalms of David, the Psalms of Asaph. Where did Solomon gain such wisdom? It's from the Lord. Scripture has one divine author, and that is the Spirit. We see in the very first psalm that we sing, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And here's one sitting in the seat of the scornful. The Lord comes and brings this indictment. These are covenant children that so hated the covenant of God that they run after lawlessness. This is Cain. This is Esau. This is Onan. This is Laban. This is Achan. This is Nabal. This is Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. The king. This is Judas Iscariot. To hate your covenant, to sell it for a pot, a pottage, for a little soup. To put your hand with lawlessness, to attack the Lord and his anointed, to seek to strike out against Christ. You see the indictment that is given here. Don't think that this is just speaking of the world. It's true, this is the nature of the world, to be lawless, to be outside of the covenant of God. But within the visible church, this still remains. And maybe you are one such here this morning. Let me say, well, I'm not just a formalist. I'm lawless. I hate Christ. I hate everything about him. I hate my brothers and sisters in Christ. I hate his worship. I can't stand it. When my parents bring me to church, I would rather throw up. In fact, I try to think of every conceivable thing in the morning to do to try and get out of the car so that I don't get to go to worship. I pray that's not you. But if it is, dear friend, I say repent of such sin. Repent and take hold of Christ. You have this hanging indictment above you. It's not going away. And you will give an account for it on the last day, except you take hold of Christ by faith, except you take hold of him by faith. See the remedy that he gives also to the lawless. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtst that I was altogether such as one of thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes." Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright, will I show salvation? Now, this isn't prevenient grace. This isn't the idea of, I'm doing good works in order to merit God's favor so that he'll save me by faith. That's not what's going on here. He's showing the remedy in Christ and the fruit that is born in that remedy. He warns them of the last day that he will come as a thief in a night and he will tear them in pieces. Don't think that you'll be able to escape. The Lord will snatch you out and will cause you to give an account to him. But here is his warning. Part of the remedy is found in the warning itself. We've seen this in the world, have we not? We see this in worldling Christians. We see this in the world. Verse 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Now we, beloved, have a duty that when wickedness is seen before us in the workplace, to not be party to it, to not be silently standing by while a dirty joke is said, while someone's name is denigrated. We have a duty to speak the truth. We have a duty to rebuke wickedness. But here's the living God and the arrogance of the sinner to say, because God did not smite me like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, therefore he must be accepting of my sin. This is the same wicked people that at the same time will judge the Lord and say, how dare he kill Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. You see, they believe they're calling the shots. And God is drawing them to account and he's saying to them, you think that because I did not come personally and particularly by a prophet in your face, that I was okay with what you were doing. In fact, I was party to it. I was like, this is a great time. No, no, beloved. And so it may be. You may be so caked in your sin that you can't even feel the prick of your conscience, and you think, all's at peace. I have no rumblings from God. Things must be all well. What does the Lord say? I will reprove thee and set them in order before your eyes. This morning, if you are in this state, you are receiving this reproof. Your sins are being set before your eyes and you need to repent. But this remedy, consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces. God would shake you out of your stupor. And have you listen to him and say, take hold of my son. What a foolish thing it is to do, to reject remedy. You go to the doctor, the doctor tells you, you have a serious illness. In fact, if we do not act quickly, it is going to be terminal. You will not have long to live. You will have to get your house in order and kiss your loved ones goodbye. But there is this treatment, and it is proven 100% effective. How many times can you hear that in the medical profession? That something that's going to be terminal can be treated this way, and it'd be 100% effective. And you say, thanks, no thanks, I'll die. When the gospel comes to you and you rebuff it and you reject Christ and his righteousness, you're like that one sitting before the doctor and saying, that treatment that's been proven 100% effective, no thank you, I'd rather die. It is a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Beloved, he calls for us to have proper gospel-centered worship. The result of one that repents of their sins will bring those offerings. So the formalist comes and brings offering after offering after offering, and the Lord says, I'm not going to reprove you of it. One of the fruits of the repentance of the lawless is to put away self-worship and will-worship and to come to the Lord with what He has commanded in worship. That's a humbling thing, is it not? To before be playing with God and saying, This is what will please Him. It pleases me, so therefore it will please Him. And instead, to in humility say, No, I was wrong. I have been a blasphemer. I have hated my brother in my heart and murdered him. I have engaged in nefarious activities. I repent of those sins, and I bring fruit of repentance. This is what the Lord calls his church to. This is what he calls you to. You sit before the tribunal of the living God, and all throughout your life you'll find yourself in one of those two categories, formalism lawlessness. Both need to be repented of. Both need to embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And both need to follow him with a true heart. We're going to see this throughout the church, age upon age, until the Lord returns. The Lord Jesus Christ on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 2 and 3 did this very thing. Only two churches did not receive a negative charge. But you look in Asia Minor, where are those churches today? God has removed the candlestick of those churches. It's a microcosm. What's true of the individual is true of the greater. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so, beloved, you may be sitting here. You may be a formalist. You may be lawless. You may be repentant. I hope that you are. I hope many of the people that I'm speaking to are not formalists. I do not believe such. But if such is the case... Repent, or oh repent, while it is called today to gospel-centered worship, before we meet Christ on the last day, before the bar of judgment. Let us stand and look to the Lord in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, you have told us in your word that you chasten those who you love. Oh, how I am rebuked this morning for formalism and lawlessness. Cause us to repent of such sins. We thank you that in your long-suffering and loving-kindness, you do give to us your word, and you bring it again and again and again. We pray that you would not withdraw yourself from us. In the presence of your Holy Spirit, You would bring a heart of repentance to your people, not just any here that may be formalist or lawless, but throughout the whole world. We would see a revival in our nation, a return to true worship, a rejection of false morality, following you with true hearts. As we pray in the name of our beloved son, your beloved son, our elder brother.